weekly podcast for content marketers about the strategies and tools you need to create addictive content your audience will love. I'm your host, Liz Murphy, Impact's Director of Web and Interactive Content. Happy Wednesday, everybody, and congratulations. We've made it yet again to the midweek milestone of hump day. And also again this week, I find myself feeling rather cheery. Now, we're going to have to leave aside the fact that it's mid-October and it's still 80 degrees outside, which, to be honest, makes me feel personally attacked because why else would this horror show of a weather forecast be thrust upon me day after day after day? But again, leaving that aside, it's been hectic, but an immensely satisfying seven days since I last dropped into your podcast feeds. First and foremost, you may have noticed that the intro this week was somewhat different. I am no longer a content strategist for Impact. I am now the director of web and interactive content for Impact, which is very exciting. But the most rewarding thing I would say that's happened in the past week is seeing folks from our team really step up to the plate in terms of delivering exceptional, absurdly helpful content as we continue to stand up our own pillar strategy for Impact. But what made that rewarding is realizing that... It made me realize that I don't give our team enough credit, and that is entirely on my shoulders because as someone who lives and breathes content as my job and my career, I know firsthand how easy it is to become jaded you know, and assume that your team or your network of internal content contributors aren't going to want to step up to the plate in that way, that you're going to need to drag them kicking and screaming across the finish line because they don't see the value of creating content, or maybe they totally see that value, but they just don't want to get involved for whatever reason. Maybe the writing process is hard, or they feel that they have other stuff that they should be working on. But instead, over the past few weeks, I've watched People like Mariah, our sales team client success specialist, Karina, our HubSpot mastermind guru and epic trainer, Zach, our director of video strategy and lead video trainer, Britt and Stacy from our strategist team, and many, many others deliver on milestone after milestone. I give a, them a crazy assignment. This is the outline you need to do. This is how many sections we need to get done. And they're delivering incredible work. But most of all, they're not just hungry to not only get their respective pillars done, they are, they're committed to creating the best piece of content on their respective topics ever seen. And that's on top of their insane workloads that are already kind of nuts, right? So while the promotion is a wonderful thing, this week has been a great reminder that empowering others to rise to the occasion, to give them that platform for their expertise so they can share it with others and, and help other people. And then having them grab a hold of that opportunity with both hands is, is why I love what I do and why I love the people I work with. But, you know, okay, enough waxing emotional and philosophic. Let's, let's dive into today's discussion. In a surprise to no one, my job also does include reviewing and coming across really bad content to the point where it takes a lot for me to be blown away by an article in the wild that has to do with what I do. That's not to say there isn't a ton of great thought leadership out there about content creation and copywriting, but we all know that across our entire industry, and by industry I mean those of us who are in the business of creating content for different types of businesses, there is a bloat of mediocre content and my field of expertise of content creation is not exempt from that. Then, on September 12th, 
somebody from up upon high knew that I needed to be inspired. And I came across this article on Copyblogger that completely blew me away to the point where immediately after I finished reading it, I hopped into our general Slack channel for impact and shared it with the entire company. It's called How Copywriters Can Leverage the Power of Feel-Good Chemicals to Make More Sales by Nick Osborne of ConversationalCopywriting.com. He talks about why copywriters need to care about neuromarketing and how copywriting that appeals to emotions of your audience can easily backfire if you tap into the wrong types of emotions. It was utterly and completely fascinating. So I invited Nick to join me this week to discuss what neuromarketing is, why it matters, what it actually means to tap into feel-good chemicals while copywriting, and then that fine line you can cross into that feel-bad realm. As always, don't forget to stick around after our conversation for this week's One Thing and the Weekly Awesome. But without further ado, here is my talk with Nick. Well, today I am happy to welcome Nick Usborne, a copywriter and trainer for more than 35 years, the author of NetWords, and the founder of Conversational Copywriting. Thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to this. I have to say one of my favorite facts that you told me before we got started today is that you said you wrote your first website in 1995. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what was the website? It was actually for a, God, we could go right down the rabbit hole on this one. It was actually for a, a nonprofit farm where I had endangered breeds of farm animals and it was open to the public and part of my promotional effort at the time was to create a website so everyone could see the farm animals on the farm so that was so 1995 was you know it was fairly early on in the game um, I, I remember the time whether we were trying to decide whether to code the site for this kind of new upstart browser called Netscape that just appeared Oh gosh, Netscape Navigator back in the day. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that is way back. But I, I didn't get, when I started working full time for writing for the web and copywriting online, it wasn't until 1997. So still early on, still early. But um, yeah. What were you doing before that? I've been a copywriter since I, it's been my only proper grown up job my entire life. So I've been doing this next year is my 40th anniversary, I think, as a copywriter. So. That is exciting. Well, what do you love about what you do? I don't know. I just, um, when I first got that job, which I kind of fell into by accident, it, it, was, it was the first time I ever found something that people paid me for that I felt I was good at and that I enjoyed. And mm -hmm. I really loved it, like from the first day, the first day somebody asked me, I signed up, at a, you know, I was hired at an ad agency as like a trainee and they said, write an ad. So I wrote the ad and I said, this is great, do another one. And I was like, whoa, because I loved doing it. And they loved the work and they paid me a proper salary, which is the first time in my life for that. But That's always very exciting when you hit that, that like big adult moment. I'm getting a salary and a business card. <laughs> and I was being paid to do something that was fun. Because mm -hmm. my jobs before that were like casual jobs, labor, you know, stuff like that, where, you know, for sure you got paid because your work was hard work and it was a pain. But this was like, it came easy to me. It was fun. 
and they paid me. So what's not to love about that? So uh, I just stuck with that now for 40 years. So what's interesting, however, is I, I would imagine that given the breadth of your experience over time, you've seen what I would call the art of copywriting really shift and evolve in terms of what people deem effective versus ineffective. There's two kind of different streams there. One is there are aspects of copywriting that are exactly the same today as they were when I was writing print ads back in 1979. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there's some fundamentals in terms of the art and craft of persuasion. Mm -hmm. Like if I say, and, and it sounds like, it sounds silly, it sounds ridiculous, but it's, it's just- Not to me, you were-, you were... <laughs> if, I'm, if, if I'm selling you something and I say, oh, by the way, um, the price goes up on Friday night. And then I mm -hmm. say, reminder on Friday, you're far more likely to buy because there's urgency there. It's gonna, the opportunity will disappear. Or if I'm selling an event and I say, oh, there's only 10 seats left, you'd better sign up now. You're more likely to buy scarcity. If I say something's new, you're more likely to buy. We like, like we're hardwired to, to watch out for stuff that's new. For new shiny objects. Yeah, yeah. anything. Well, you, we see that in online content creation and social media, that what's new gets all the attention. Not that it's better, it's just happens to be new. So, so there are all kinds of fundamentals to persuasion that have remained the same. But in terms of offline going to online copywriting, uh, there have been some huge changes, I think, because the fundamental of offline is that it's one-way media. It's a print ad or it's a TV ad or a radio commercial. And you're basically broadcasting a sales message at an audience. Mm -hmm. And that audience can't reply. You can't reply to a TV ad through your TV or to a radio commercial. Uh, with print, maybe you can write a letter to the editor, but that's about it. So these were one-way broadcast media, and that impacted the way we wrote copy, because you're writing at an audience. It's a one-way deal. Online, the web is not a one-way medium. It's a two-way, multi-way medium. So if I, as a company, send a message to you, you can send one right back to me. In fact, online, more content is created by individuals each day than it is by media companies or businesses because we're all madly doing stuff on Facebook and Instagram. And, and so it's a multi-way medium. So now instead of broadcasting a sales message at an audience, which people really don't much like, they start installing ad blockers and screening your emails and stuff if you're too shouty and pushy. Uh, so online, I think you're far better off instead of that broadcasting at approach of taking an engaging with approach. And that's a mindset thing, but it's also a writing thing. The way I write to you, I should write to you in a more open, engaging, inclusive way than I did when I was writing a direct mail piece back in 1983. I'm rambling a bit, but. No, not at all, because I think it actually leads kind of nicely into what we were talking about or what you and I we're going to be talking about today, which is actually a natural extension of last week's episode I did with Stephanie Stevens, who's our Director of Audience Engagement and Community. And we were talking about conversational email copywriting and how we're seeing a similar shift in the approach in email, where you used to see a lot of talking at people newsletters, and now instead creating newsletters and email interchanges from brands that are more conversational from an individual as opposed to this kind of omniscient brand voice that doesn't really have a name behind it. Right. But you wrote this article, I think it was back in September, 
for Copyblogger, and I'll link this in the show notes, and it's called How Copywriters Can Leverage the Power of Feel-Good Chemicals to Make More Sales. <laughs> and I will admit, I digest a lot of content, and with that comes the understanding that I digest a lot of crappy content. So it's rare that I really read something that excites me. And I was, I have to just tell you, I read this article and immediately just went, wow, and opened up Slack, went to the general channel that goes out to the entire company and said, everybody needs to read this. And I got like three thumbs up, but you know, I was trying to be the champion of the cause. <laughs> and it opens with something where you started talking about like, what is it that we're really seeking as individuals to brands? Like what we tend to naturally like versus what we tend to naturally dislike. Right. And it starts with, sometimes we feel in two minds about things. For example, imagine you're out for dinner, fabulous meal, wonderful company. And then your waiter, uh, waiter comes by with a dessert tray. Oh my, those desserts look amazing. And at this point, many of us find ourselves in two minds. One part of our mind urgently, desperately wants to grab a slice of that triple chocolate mousse cake. You wrote this with me in mind as an aside. I feel seen <laughs> and understood. The, another part is reminding us of the calorie count and the huge amount of sugar in that dessert. And it turns out we are literally in two minds. Welcome to your conflicted brain and the world of neuromarketing. Now, neuromarketing is a term I've like kind of heard, but I didn't really think about it too hard. But this is really the crux of how copywriters can write in a way that makes people feel good, but it's rooted in this concept of neuromarketing. So could yeah. you talk a little bit about what exactly that is and why copywriters and content creators need to care about it? Okay. So neuromarketing, I guess, has been around as a quietly been around for about a decade now. And it, it basically all kicked. It was made possible by the invention of the fMRI machine. So on TV shows and stuff in hospitals, you see somebody with their head being slid into this big donut shaped thing. And that's an, that's an MRI machine. And what it does is it actually measures the oxygen flow in the blood in your brain. And if you are stimulated in some way, now it's used obviously for medical stuff to see, you know, what part of your brains are made. Maybe, maybe you've had a stroke and they want to see which part of your brain is not receiving blood. Mm -hmm. But people, the scientists have been fascinated to discover that actually um, they can track how we respond and in which parts of our brain we respond to all kinds of other stimuli. So if I'm lying down in that machine and you show me a picture of something scary, like a snake or a tiger, you'll actually see on the screen um, the blood rushing to my amygdala and my amygdala lights up on the screen. So the amygdala is, is part of the reptilian brain. It's like just up at the top of the brain stem there. It, it, it's the part of the brain that kept us alive 20,000 years ago. It, it's instinctual, it doesn't think, it acts by instinct. And when we see something scary, like a picture of a tiger, our amygdala lights up and basically it's saying, hey, either hide or run or maybe fight, but you got to do something or you're going to die. So neuromarketing came along when a marketer for the first time thought, well, hang on, what if I, I, I want to see how the brain behaves in response to certain types of message, sales pitches. Mm -hmm. So if I actually, um, if, if I'm in the machine and you play to me, a super aggressive sales pitch from a used car salesman, my amygdala will light up in the same way. I actually have this very primitive fight or flight response to an aggressive sales message. It is by the 
by the reptilian brain as a threat. And you, so that, that's some, hey, I'm, I'm not a neuroscientist. So I'm, I'm, just, I'm just a kind of really interested student of all this. Uh, but yeah, like in the old days when we wanted to measure how people responded to certain types of messaging, we did focus groups or we do eye scans and heat maps and, and tracking online. But with an MRI machine, you can actually see how the brain responds to certain types of messaging and sales messaging and individual words. And if I, and hey, it's like, we don't really need the machine. You know it yourself. Like if, if someone comes to the door and they're trying to sell you something, you, uh, you're aware of a change taking place in your body, right? You can almost feel the chemical makeup in your mind shifting and you become on the defensive. You feel defenses coming up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think it's something we've all experienced that defensive feel when we feel, you know, when someone's selling at us too hard and Hey, it could be a family member. It could be a boss. It could be a colleague who gets aggressive with us and we feel those defenses go up. And if you were in an MRI machine at that time, you'd see the amygdala light up. Uh, so that, that is that what happens when it lights up it, it your body, your mind, your brain releases a chemical called cortisol, which makes you feel very stressed and anxious. Mm -hmm. uh, and the bad thing about cortisol is that it has a, a very long half-life of about 26 hours. Mm -hmm. So I'm rambling again, but it, I just find this fascinating. Like if somebody says something mean to you or, or indeed you say something mean to someone else and you feel bad about it, you know how that feeling of badness lingers? You keep thinking about it all day long right? Even when you go to bed, it's still there. You can't get it out of your mind. And that is, that is cortisol. That is the mm -hmm. cortisol in your brain with a long half-life. Now, if on the other hand, I say something, I compliment you and you, you feel good. You know, I say, I was saying to you earlier how much I enjoyed that, the podcast you did with Megan from HubSpot before we started recording. And so, so you get a little blip there. of Oh, that feels nice. I like that. That was, yeah. Cool. How long does that last? Super short, super short, you know, unless I'm somebody you desperately like a boss, you've been waiting for a kind word for the last five years. But generally, hey, this is how social media works. All right. We get a friend, we get a like, we get this little, little, just this little splash of dopamine comes up into our brain and we feel good but for a moment. So when we're trying to sell stuff, we have to be super careful because when we make a reader feel good, if I write copy that is inclusive and complimentary and engaging with you, you might get that little splash of dopamine, but you won't feel good for long. If on the other hand, I overextend myself in terms of aggressive sales messaging and I push you too hard and a little drop of cortisol jumps into your mind, that your, your sense of trying to defend yourself against me will endure for actually at least, at least 26 hours. <laughs> So, so, so the chemistry of what happens in our brains in response to life around us, I find fascinating. But to me as a copywriter, what's super fascinating is how the brain actually, you know, this, this neuroscience of how the brain responds to messaging, whether that be web content, whether it be social media, whether it be a sales message. So here would be my question to you then is, you know, it, this conversational copywriting movement for lack of a better term it, it's been around for some time but i'm really starting to see it pick up steam and we're, we talked a lot about how at a very high level 
we as copywriters and content creators and marketers have the ability to essentially pull levers within the brain that either release feel good chemicals, which is a positive or feel bad chemicals, which are negative. But where does the art of conversational copywriting come into us? What is the relationship between adopting a more conversational tone and the types of chemicals that you release within the brains of the people that you're trying to reach? Because this is what I find absolutely fascinating. So I, when I'm writing copy, you know, I'm, I'm not thinking sort of, you know, cortisol, dopamine, uh, you know, oxytocin. I, I'm, I'm not thinking about, I, I don't obsess over this. I, but I'm, I'm very, well, let me, let me go back to the always an overused dating analogy. Mm -hmm. um, if I, which I wouldn't at my advanced age, but if I went to a bar and I went to a, a one night stand, uh -huh. then I would use certain language. Uh, in fact, my, my, probably my clothes, my posture, my body language, the language I use, the subjects I bring up, the, everything I do is going to be focused on the one night stand. All right. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm really selling. I'm really pitching myself. I'm selling. And, and with a one night stand in mind, that is my purpose. If on the other hand, I go to a bar or wherever, and yeah, I want to meet someone, but I'm actually looking for a long-term relationship. I, I want to meet someone that I can... Now my language changes, my body language changes, my pace, the pace of how I speak, ch everything changes because my, 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 my goal is utterly different. And, and I think it's the same with sales. Uh, I think we're all exposed to an awful lot of one-night stand copywriting. Is, and what, what I... What I really dislike is, is when I'm dropped into some automated funnel and I get these relentless promotions in my email inbox and, and pop-ups and everywhere else. And, and this is very fast paced, very hard selling at me. And, and it, it feels a little bit like that one night stand experience. You know, they just want to grab the money and that's it. If on the other hand, I want to, if I think, you know what, rather than grab 20 bucks now, I want to build a relationship with this person as a customer. And I want to grab 200 bucks over the next year or 18 months. So now I'm after a long-term relationship. And for that to happen, you have to trust me. I, I can't just push you. I can't play with the chemicals. I can't pull the levers uh, to make you trust me. I, I can do that to make you, to grab some of your money in the next 10 minutes. Hey, it's, it's what I've been trained to do for almost 40 years. I know how to do that. But I'm not going to do that if I actually am playing the long-term game and I want to build a relationship that endures over time. And, I, and, and if I'm sincere, if I want to serve you because I feel I have a product or service that will be of value to you. So my mindset now is totally different. The way I write is totally different. My language, the pace. Uh, and I'm not saying that I'm never going to automate anything, that I'm never going to drop you into a, 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 an automated marketing funnel. I probably will because I can use that to my advantage, but I will tone it down. I will probably cut back on the frequency and I will definitely change the language because I, I, you know, I'm not focused on that first 10 or $20 I could get out of you in the next two hours. I want to build a relationship with you as a customer and keep you as a trusted, you know, that I, mean, I need you to trust me if, if, if I'm playing the long game, if I'm going for a long-term relationship. So going back to the, the article that you wrote, it's, it, the, you actually described 
in three distinct and succinct sentences the hallmarks of what this conversational copywriting looks like in practice. And you said to speak softly and build trust, use a ton of positive language, go easy on the negative stuff, and make your readers feel safe. Some of those are a little bit more explicit, but can you be a little bit more specific in the tactics that people or the habits that people and copywriters should embrace when they're trying to create a spot in their writing where readers do feel safe, where they are able to build trust, where they are speaking softly even though they only have words as opposed to being able to sit directly in front of one someone. Right. Well, it's interesting that last point you make is, is one of the, and, and, we, and we'll circle back to this because uh, as you've noticed, I can be succinct in writing, but not so much when I'm talking. Uh, I am the exact same way. If somebody asks me a yes or no question, you're definitely getting a 12 paragraph response, just <laughs> FYI. And no yes or no either. Like I won't even actually answer the question. <laughs> okay, so, go, so going back to what we talked about earlier on in terms of some of the fundamentals of copywriting remain the same. You know, like the use of active verbs, stuff like that. Uh, you know, some of these copywriting fundamentals remain the same. But I will do things like I will seek to, one of the things I really do is I try to include the reader in the communication. So let me explain. I might, instead of making a statement, I might ask a question. You know, what jumps into your mind when you think of the perfect vacation? Now, now what I'm doing now is I, I'm, I'm engaging your mind. If, if, if I just say uh, the best beach vacation includes A, B, and C, you can, you know, I'm just speaking at you and you can either agree or disagree. If I say, what are you, what are the three favorite things you look for in a vacation? Now I'm engaging you as I write. So now you're part of this. And there is a, there's a kind of implicit, I don't know, respect there when I include you. So I'm going to use uh, open-ended questions. I'm going to, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to write in a way that feels I'm not just shouting at you mm -hmm. and that, I, that I'd like to and, and one of the ways that I test it and I encourage other people to test it is when I've written something that is if I'm trying to make a sale is I will read it out loud and I'll sometimes read it out loud to myself in a mirror or I'll read it out loud to my wife or my daughter because they're hyper very very critical <laughs> critics <laughs> of my writing but mainly I'm reading it for two reasons. One, am I sounding like a creep? Because if I am, I'm probably not selling very well. I'm selling like an old school broadcast salesperson. If I, if I sound like a bit of a creep when I'm reading my text. The other thing that happens is that if I try to write, uh, how would I describe it? It's like corporate gobbledygook. You know that weird language that companies use sometimes that, mm -hmm. that you know, $50 words where a $1 word would do, and their sentences are 35 words long, kind of these complex, and you read it and you have no idea what they've been saying. Um, anything like that, when you read it out loud, it, you just sound like an idiot. So like, you know, if I read that out loud to a family member or a friend or something, they'll just look at me like, what? You just, I saw your lips moving, but I didn't get any meaning from that at all. Those are very nice words, but what the hell are you saying? <laughs> That's right. So the other thing about conversational copywriting is that when we are in conversation, as you and I are right now, 
all, all kinds of things happen. We, we tend to talk with shorter words. You and I, we haven't used any long words, I don't think. Uh, we tend to show, talk in shorter sentences. We, we're probably a little more repetitive than we are when we edit a lot in our writing. You know, when we speak, we kind of probably, like you and I, we both have problems with uh, being succinct when we're talking. So conversational copywriting can be a little longer sometimes, not always. And, and, but my test is, if you read this out loud, would it feel natural? Mm -hmm. And then people say, oh yeah, Nick, but you've got to make the sale. And I say, huh, you've never been in conversation with a teenage daughter who wants to stay out till one o'clock tonight. Because at some party, because uh, a conversation can be incredibly persuasive. If you're, you know, you can, if you're talking to a family member, if you're talking to a colleague, a friend, whatever. Hey, you get a with a friend, let's go out for supper. Yeah, which restaurant? You can be very persuasive and say, no, nah, that, that place was horrible. Remember last time? So conversation language can be extremely persuasive language, but it feels more, it feels safer, like the persuasive conversation you'd have with family or friends. And it doesn't have that kind of adversarial feeling that comes from a company broadcasting a sales message in your face. And, and that is that, and again, it's that adversarial, I think is that old school broadcast copywriting approach. I'm going I'm to win. I'm going to make you buy. There's an adversarial sense there. Um, in conversational copywriting, which really basically translates as the kind of copies, copywriting that works online on, you know, on a, within a multi-way medium, a two-way medium. Uh, there's less of that adversarial. I, certainly when I write, I want my reader to feel that I'm on their side, that I'm speaking to them honestly, with transparency, respectfully. But I can, still, of, be, I can still be super persuasive. One of the things that you said, though, that jumped out at me was that, but what a lot of copywriters and digital marketers don't understand is that there's a huge downside to pushing those emotional buttons too hard and too often. Can you tell me a little bit about that? That is where we get into the, I mean, there's a lot of, hey, you can, there's probably a million ebooks on how to become a brilliant copywriter this weekend. And a lot of them include all the tried and tested tips and tricks and techniques and secrets of copywriting. And some of those are quite pushy and quite loud. Um, and they come out of that kind of old school copywriting toolbox. Now, let's say most of them still work so long as you handle them with care. But the point is, if you do push too hard, you get back to what we were talking about with the neuroscience, is that my amygdala lights up, cortisol drops into my brain, and I back off, I defend myself, I stop listening. So let me give you an example. I, I was critiquing a copywriter's work, she sent me in a sample where she was writing an email for, uh, basically it was a local lawn care company, and at the end of the season, by this time of year, they send out an email offering their clients a let's put your garden to bed service, like prepare for winter, you know, mulch the lawns, you know, whatever we, here are five things we'll do for you. And they're inviting people to then ring up and say, yes, let's make an appointment so we can come out. What they actually really want is they want to come out to your home so they can get you to sign up again for next year. Uh, but the, the kind of teaser is we're going to put your garden to bed and it's, it's, it's great. So it's a nice high value offer. 
what she did in her email is she said at the end, it, it's like she was talking quite, she wrote it quite rightly as if it were from a local company, a local business. This, this, you know, a lawn care company is a local business by default. They're, they're, hey, maybe the kids go to the same schools as yours, as yours do. And she wrote in that tone, which was totally appropriate. But then in the last paragraph, there was this, and I've forgotten the exact words, but it was a classic, but don't wait too late, don't wait too long. You know, our, our, our appointments will run out soon. Please call me before Friday, you know, lunchtime this Friday. And it was this classic rush, rush, direct response, pushing thing. And I said to her, I said, I get what you're doing. I know urgency is important. But that, that sudden shift in tone of voice from I am your friendly neighbor offering this generous service to this kind of harsh, loud, direct response, copywriter voice, this is, this, it was a very, very awkward transition. And that is precisely the point at which people can like back off, like, whoa, hang on, I thought you were the nice guy. <laughs> What's with the shouting? What's with the pushing? And I said to her, I said, it's so easy to do that a different way. Instead of, instead of coming up with a, like a, a marketer created deadline of Friday, why don't you say something like, oh, hey, we can't do this once the first hard frost hits or when we have our first really heavy seasonal rainfall. You know, it'll be too late for us to get out into your garden, your yard at that point. So please call now because who knows when that first rainfall, that first frost will hit. So, so now I'm still using urgency. I'm, I'm saying, hey, you should call now. But instead of that kind of made up marketer push, I, I'm using something that's totally relevant to the garden, totally real, it's the seasons. And I'm achieving it in a way where I don't have to make that awkward transition from being the nice guy to being the pushy guy. Because I see that it, it, it's, it's, you, you must you must notice it like I don't know with friends or with colleagues when you feel a shift in language you feel distrust like there's something a little off happening here mm -hmm. I, I feel the same where I might get a and this is what I call kind of a false conversational is I will get an email I sign up for lots of emails because I just want to read the emails so I'll sign up for an email and they, so I'm a complete stranger and they're, you know, I'm a stranger, they're a stranger. I've just signed up. Then the next morning, you know, cause I've been to a page on their website. I think, Oh, that's mildly interesting. I'll sign up. And I, I download an ebook, which I never read, but it's somewhere on my hard drive. And then the next day I get this email saying, Hey Nick, I was thinking about you this morning. I noticed you went to such and such page, but you haven't signed up for our super duper service. And I stop and I think, no, that's BS. You're lying to me. You didn't think about me this morning. This is an automated email that's been sitting in the, in the system for months. You didn't think about me. It's just the system has seen I went to that page and is kicking off this email the next morning. And don't say, hey, Nick, we're strangers. So that I would call, like, that to me is like the, the kind of false, you know, you're my buddy conversational approach. So again, if, I, if I'm writing a first email to someone, it's first contact, yeah, I'll, I'll try to present myself as being accessible and friendly and conversational, but I won't pretend a level of relationship that doesn't exist or doesn't exist yet. Now, 
if there is a sequence, like I say, I'm not averse to automation. If there's a sequence of five emails over a period, or if I'm writing something to that, that person when they become a customer, now my tone will shift a little bit. Because, mm-hmm. hey, now, you know, we, there's, there's more trust there. There's a longer relationship there. And, of course, I might then come across that person in a, in a Facebook group or elsewhere. So it, it's, to me, it's all a matter of using a tone that is appropriate to the moment. It, it, we're going back to the bar. I mean, is, it, is this a pickup line or am I, do I really want to get to know you? Yeah, because that's what it reminds me of, too. You know, when you were describing that, I'm like, oh, I think sometimes when marketers and salespeople walk through the door of their office, they forget that they're human beings or like something happens to our brains where all of a sudden we we start ignoring all of the instincts and and gut reactions we have to things as human beings because we suddenly put on these marketing and sales hats and say, well, the data shows us this and we're trying to create this experience for the person and blah, blah, blah. Because what you're describing to me is basically the equivalent of, have you ever had those situations where you'll meet somebody and they seem really nice, but they try to be your best friend immediately? Like somehow you've skipped 18,000 steps and within the first conversation, they're like, oh, we're gonna be best friends. Oh my God, we're gonna do this. Oh my God, we're gonna do this. And it's like, whoa, whoa. Yeah. I need you to calm down. We are nowhere near there yet. And it actually makes you feel uncomfortable. So I really like that notion of when we're, when we're sitting down to determine, you know, for using conversational copywriting email is that perfect example, because it reminds me of, you know, marketers love to kind of ruin everything. We find a tactic that somebody says works and we suddenly apply it blanketly to everything. Right. But really the first step you need to do is when you sit down to either write a piece of like a piece of content or an email that's going in a workflow, you first have to stop and say, who is this person? How well do I know them at this point? And is this level of, of, of relationship building at the appropriate level? Like, am I being appropriate in terms of my tone for the moment and the context of the situation? Instead of what are the tactics we're supposed to be using right now as conversational in? Well, that's right. So going back to the point you made about we go into the office and we forget we're human. And we do. We pick up a toolbox and then we open up the toolbox and inside are all these marketing copywriting tools. And we start deploying them, which again is all part of the kind of there's so much aggressive language in marketing. <laughs> um, you know, we're, we're, we're going to deploy these tools and we're going to close the sale. And we're going to hack our way to glory and growth. Yeah. That, that's right. And, it, and it's like, it's very, very aggressive. Uh, and it is, it's the toolbox. And yeah, we, we, and there's the classic, oh, well, it's business as opposed to, oh, well, I'm being a human. Um, but yeah, I think, yeah, I think you put your finger on it. Absolutely. There. The idea that we we forget to that the person at the other end is a regular person like like us and it's but 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 also partly it's it's the business mentality there there is so much about maximizing revenues this month or this quarter and and if you want to do that if you insist on doing that i can i can help you with that like i said i've been a copywriter forever i know how to do that Uh, i just don't think that's really what you want most of the time, because the cost of your acquiring new customers over and over again is, is really, really expensive if you keep pushing them away. If, however, you can acquire a customer and hold that customer and maximize their lifetime value because you speak to them and write to them and sell to them in a respectful way, 
and that they never leave you and they tell their friends about you, then your cost per acquisition comes way down. So I, I would argue that, you know, some people say, oh yeah, Nick, but we can't, we don't have the time to be nice. And it's like, well, okay, you must have a huge budget. <laughs> you're, 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 you know, you're, you're losing customers left, right and center because you're being overly aggressive and you're trying to upsell them and, and cross sell them without a pause. Well, what's interesting about that too, is it sounds like also, oh, we don't have time for, we don't have time to be nice. What you're saying is you don't have time to act like a human being which considering the level of authenticity that is being demanded by your audience, I, I mean, my counter to that is really can't afford not to be anymore. But I want to play devil's advocate about something for a moment. It, have you, there's a book called The Challenger Sale by Matthew Dixon. Um, and it basically, it, at a very high level, it talks about this new approach to selling where instead of being the relationship builder as a salesperson, your goal is to teach Taylor and take control of the sales conversation. And if, what I found fascinating about this is that the challenger is where the relationship builder type of salesperson is more concerned with the customer convenience and, and being accepted by the customer. The challenger is actually focused on pushing the customer out of their comfort zone. In fact, it's encouraged at very specific points during the sales process under this challenger sale model to make them squirm a little, to make them squirm a little by painting a picture of their current situation using data to kind of corner them a little bit and, and set and really get very detailed about this is the problem you're having. This is the problem that everybody's having and it needs to be different and you need to move in a different direction and, and I've noticed that this challenger sale approach is kind of coming out of the sales process somewhat. And I'm seeing it in website copy as well, where you begin with the problem and literal agitation of the person you're trying to reach. Right. So my question is, is, is there ever a good reason to tap into those feel bad chemicals in order to turn around and make someone feel good? Because at the end of that, you present the solution, the new way going forward. And I'd just be really curious to get your thoughts on that. You, you can do that. You can do that. Uh, I, and, and again, as a, as a seasoned copywriter, I can, I can uh, make more sales. I can make more sales by making you fearful. I can make you scared, scared to be left out, scared to look bad, scared not to be the best you can be. Fear is a very powerful motivator. I can do that if I want. Um, you know, and again, I know which levers to pull. I don't think it's a particularly effective long-term strategy to try to build a relationship based on fear. Uh, <laughs> I, I just don't think you can endure that way. The challenger thing, it, it kind of makes me smile because as a, as a marketer, I think, hey, what a, what a wonderful system, what a wonderful process to create and build a book and a business around because it just, it just gives... It gives the reader, the participant, the sense they're in control. If I agitate, if I challenge, I'm in control. I can drive the sale. Uh, it makes you feel like you're the boss of something, right? Mm -hmm. So I would say to everyone who reads that book, I have another book for them to read. Uh, it's called Never Split the Difference. Negotiating as if your life depended on it by Chris Voss. Have you heard of that book? I have. Uh, I haven't read it, but I have heard of it. So Chris Voss is the, was the chief hostage negotiator for the FBI. And the FBI's basic 
way of dealing with hostage takers, whether it was in a bank vault or it was terrorists in Somalia, was basically the challenger model. They would try to take control. And Chris Voss tried with different, realized actually it wasn't working terribly well, so he tried a whole bunch of different things. And his approach is much more, let me empathize with the, he said, I don't agree with the hostage taker, but let me empathize with the hostage taker. Let me open a conversation, a dialogue. Let me listen to the hostage taker, empathize with their position, reflect back, mirror back to them their concerns. I understand that you're angry about this or you're upset about this or you're worried the police are gonna shoot you if we open the back doors or whatever. And so, so he's sounding like a West Coast granola therapist, you know, like with all this softly, softly stuff, except it completely worked and completely transformed the way the FBI now does their hostage negotiation. So the, the challenger agitation approach is very attractive because it's kind of manly, in control, I'm the boss kind of approach. But I, I, I just love that book by Chris Voss. It's such a powerful book where he's taking the most extreme circumstance where people's lives depended on the way he approached conversations with hostage takers. And his way to save more lives was not to agitate and challenge and try to take control, but to actually to listen and to engage and to empathize even when he strongly disagreed so that he could get into conversation and find a resolution. Uh, so that it, that's, I, I understand the challenging thing. I see how it can be so, how it can be very, very attractive. It's much easier to teach. You can, it's much easier to systemize. Here is the challenger system, A, B, C, D, E, F. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's amazingly attractive in terms of building a toolbox and a process and a presentation and a boot camp and everything else around that model. Um, and, and yeah, go for it. But I, I think you'd actually, I, for the longer term, I would, I would go with the Chris Voss approach or the conversational approach um, because I think ultimately it delivers better results. So you and I both talked about this before we got started today about how the, the concept of neuromarketing and, and copywriting in a way conversationally to, to activate these feel-good chemicals is, is a deep conversation and it's a very broad, nuanced topic. But for those who are listening at home who, uh, who want to try to employ more of these techniques in their copywriting, what are a few things that they could just start doing right now that would make their copy better? I think always imagine that you are face-to-face -face with, uh, with a customer. Uh, imagine, wh whoever it is. You, you, Maybe you have some kind of buyer persona figured out as to who your customer is, what they look like, what age they are, what's important to them. Imagine that person sitting across the table from you. Imagine the conversation you might have. Imagine, and again, this is really hard for a traditional copywriter. Imagine listening. Imagine asking 20 questions and listening to answers before you say anything. And on the web, this is so easy. I can, go to, I can go to Yelp reviews. I can get an Amazon reviews. I can get a Facebook and get a social media. I can listen to my prospective customers 
a huge amount. I can, I can listen to their emotions. I can listen to the language they use. And now I'm going to reflect back and mirror that language to them when I'm writing. So, so first of all, listen. Write to people as if you care about who they are. And hopefully you do. <laughs> and, and it's like, and, and we laugh about that, but I've heard so many marketers talk about their prospect base in very derogatory terms of, uh, of like, hey, we just have to appeal to the stupid in these people and we'll get their money. You know what I mean? I mean, I actually hear conversations about this where people are saying, uh, the audience is pretty stupid, pretty gullible. I think we can get more money out of them if we do ABC. So it, it's certainly not a given that people have a respectful you know, outlook when they're, when they're thinking of their audience, but I think they should. I think they should, absolutely. Um, so yeah, ima imagine that when you are writing, to when you're writing your copy, look at it and say, if this were part of a conversation where I'd actually been listening before I wrote this, would this be a good half? Would this, if this were my half of a conversation, would this fit? Does this sound like it's my half of a conversation where I've listened, where I'm respectful, where I give a damn? Um, now, like I say, this doesn't mean to say that you're not going to use active verbs. You're not going to use short sentences. You're not going to get, you know, you're not going to use urgency or you're going to use all the same things you know work, but in a respectful way, as if I, as if I were talking to a neighbor, as if I was selling to my grandma. I can still be persuasive. I can still be enthusiastic. I just don't have to be a creep about it. <laughs> I, I love that, by the way. I almost want to put that on a post-it note, so that'll be my takeaway. If I sound like a creep, fix it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I actually have it. I actually have it. I think I put it on Instagram or something. It just says, um, copywriters like us don't sound like creeps. I love that. <laughs> and speaking of Instagram, in case people want to get back in touch with you and want to talk to you more about this and ask you questions, how can people find you? Okay, so they can, uh, anyone can email me anytime at nick at conversationalcopywriting.com. So feel free to reach out and talk to me. The go to conversationalcopywriting.com and there's a blog there. I publish just a ton of like content. If you go to conversationalcopywriting.com forward slash Liz, I'm so excited you did this. When you sent this, to me, <laughs> when you sent this to me earlier this week, I was really excited that you created this for my listeners. All right, so it's a, it's a page for you. It's forward slash Liz, and there's uh, you sign up. I do. I ask for your first name and your email address, and I give you a download, which is all about. Actually, it goes back to your earlier question. It's just five quick and easy ways to make your writing more conversational. So that's a kind of quick win on, in the download. Then there's a series of three videos. So yeah, I do. I grab your contact information and uh, you can test me. So <laughs> sign up <laughs> and see whether I write to you in a way that is respectful and conversational. But yeah, for sure. I want, cause I have a course on this, right? I want to sell you the course. I'm, mm -hmm. not gonna, I'm not gonna bully you. I'm not gonna shout at you. Uh, but for sure, I'll, I'll give you a few reasons why I think it might be helpful to you. Um, so yes, I use the same marketing, uh, you know, secrets that other people use. I just try to use them in a more respectful way. So yeah, Nick at Nick Osborne, Nick at Nick at conversationalcopywriting.com uh, and the website and forward slash Liz for your little package of goodies. 
Well, Nick, thank you so much for joining me today. It was so great to finally meet the author of, of, of such a great piece that I found very influential and hopefully we'll have a chance to cross paths again soon. I hope so too. It's, I've really enjoyed, uh, I've enjoyed this. I've loved your questions. It's been great. Thank you. Whew. Okay, load off my back then. <laughs> this conversation absolutely fascinated me, but there was one point toward the end that really stuck with me. And that's how we seem to forget that we as marketers, content creators, copywriters, business leaders are human beings. Every morning, we leave our homes and commute to work as humans, but as soon as we walk through the door, we deprioritize that sense of inner humanity when we're making decisions about how we communicate with the people we're trying to reach, who are, by the way, also humans themselves. When asking if we should do or not do something in an email or an article or a piece of content, we have this tendency to cling to our data or our strategies or our structure first, the the status quo, all of those architecture pieces that go around the system of our content creation. And it's not that data or strategies are bad, quite the opposite. I believe very, very strongly in the power of data-backed strategies and that you cannot be an effective content creator without using data to inform the content that you're creating. That said, it's we never really stop and ask ourselves, hey, how would I feel if I got this email in this moment? Is this something I would do in person or naturally in a conversation? If I were on the receiving end of this, how, how would I feel? So this week's one thing for you, the one thing you can do differently right now to make your content instantly better is to put your human hat back on while you're at work. As conversational copywriting continues to become more of the norm, challenge yourself as a human first about the context of what you're working on and how you would feel when you were when you are the one on the receiving end of your emails and your content. Are there steps that feel right in a strategy, but then once you actually put them into practice would feel completely inappropriate or, or too forward? It seems like an obvious thing again, but as Nick and I discussed, sometimes we can get so wrapped up in our priorities as marketers and what we believe we should be talking about or saying that we forget to stop and reflect on what we're doing when we're creating these connections and moments with our audience as people. All right. This week's Weekly Awesome, super simple. I don't have something new or mind-blowing. Instead, your Weekly Awesome homework is to go to the show notes for this episode, which you can find on impactbnd.com, and read Nick's article from Copy Blogger that started this whole conversation. It is life-changing. If you're a more of the lazy person, don't want to try to navigate a website, All you have to do is bring up the great Google machine and type in how copywriters can leverage the power of feel-good chemicals to make more sales. And the article will come up right in front of you like magic. Okay, that's it for this week, guys. As always, you can reach me at NaptownPint or at Content Lab on Twitter and Instagram. Don't forget to sign up for the monthly Content Lab newsletter, a link for which can be found in the show notes. And finally, Don't forget to leave a review on your podcast provider of choice, whether that be Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or what have you. Not only does this help me make sure that this is the most valuable podcast out there on content, seriously, leave me honest, critical feedback there. I can take it. I'm a big girl. But it also helps others find this podcast as well. And with that, until next week. (laughs) 